Jesus came to save a diverse people. And through his blood and the indwelling of the Spirit, we are now invited to live as a harmonious, unified family. This series will help you step into the life, teaching, and empowering presence of Jesus so you can follow him in your home, with your finances, and in your vocation. Now hear the word of the Lord. That same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died, and the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now, as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you ever read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. When the crowds heard him, they were astounded in his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It is good to be with you guys this morning. It's good to see you. My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors. Welcome. Hello. Welcome to everybody watching at home. Uh, Last week, we looked at Jesus getting trapped, uh, or at least attempted to be getting trapped. If you've been with us in our series in Matthew for a while, this is pretty much happening every week now. Somebody's trying to trap Jesus ever since Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees have been clear that they were trying to get Jesus killed, to kill Jesus. And so, this morning, we find him once again facing a trap just from the different, a different side of the aisle. Uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees kind of get lumped together. Pastor Bobby talked about this a few weeks ago, but they were, they were a really different group of people. The, you could think of Pharisees as kind of like good Midwestern conservatives. Uh, they were more blue-collar. They tended to be poorer. They tended to be hardworking, very conservative, both morally and religiously, Bible-believing conservative, just your typical Hoosier, maybe, I would say. Uh, Sadducees, 
if, if we want to label these guys, think of them as the liberal West Coast elites, okay? These are the wealthy people. These are the aristocratic people, kind of arrogant, looking down their nose on people. And they saw the scriptures very differently. The attack that came towards Jesus last week was basically the Pharisees arguing that Jesus was too liberal. So from the right, they're looking at Jesus and saying, you're way too left, man. You're crazy. You're one of these wild, far out there liberals. And on the same day, I don't know if you noticed that, but this is the same day that we looked at last week. So after he's getting an attack for being too liberal by the conservatives, the liberals come to him. So verse 23 says that same day. So right after this conversation about taxes that we talked about last week, that same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there's no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Uh, This was a law everybody agreed on. Uh, One of the unique things about Sadducees is they believed in God but they had a very reductionist view of him. Uh, They didn't really like anything supernatural, and they thought only the first five books of the Bible were actually the Bible. So if you want to feel like you got something today, uh, scholars will call the first five books of the Bible the Pentateuch, uh, penta meaning five, tuke meaning Lord knows what. I don't know, but that means the first five books. Anybody know the first five books? You remember the Bible song? Anybody? Crowd participation, you want to wake up? Genesis, Exodus, All right, some of you got it. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or Deuteronomy, depending on what you're into. Um, So the Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in this idea of a promised Messiah who would come and bring about the kingdom of God. Uh, They focused on the first five books of Moses as scripture, and they come to Jesus with a law about marriage that everybody agreed on, but then they came with this kind of wild scenario that follows. So for Jesus, or for the Sadducees rather, Jesus was far too conservative. They didn't like his talk about miracles. They didn't like the way he handled the scriptures. So when you're looking at Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees, realize they think Jesus is too liberal. When you see Jesus's interactions with the Sadducees, they think he's far too conservative. And so now the liberals are coming to try to trap Jesus in this ridiculous conservative scenario that I'm just going to read it for you again because I think it's hilarious. Uh, Well, suppose there were seven brothers. So again, they're building off this law that everybody had agreed on. They believed this was law. And so they're setting up this scenario. The oldest one married and then died without children. So his brother married the widow, but the second brother also died and the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them. Last of all, the woman died. Tell us whose wife will she be in the resurrection for all seven were married to her. This kind of reminds me, anybody ever taken the SATs? Anybody? No? Just me. I've taken, okay, me and Eric Foltz have taken the SATs. And okay, thank you. Um, in the SATs, you'll find these kinds of math questions where it's like one train is coming from California to Nevada going 117 miles an hour and it weighs 70,000 pounds. Another train is going from Nevada to Las Vegas and it is going 35 miles an hour, but it weighs 200 pounds. And which train, and you get these crazy math scenarios tripping you up. This is like maybe a, a theological equivalent of if any of you guys had timelines in your basement, anybody have timelines? In, don't raise your hand about that. Anybody ever go to a church where they had end times calendars in their basement? This event's going to happen, and when this event, and then this event, and they try to create all of these wild scenarios. And so the Sadducees are creating this absurd situation. You have seven people who've all been married to the same woman under the same law, but if once we're raised from the dead, is she going to be married to seven people? Because we know that's a sin. You see, they're trying to set Jesus a trap here. 
They're trying to make the rest of the Bible look ridiculous, and they're trying to make Jesus look ridiculous. They're trying to make the conservative look foolish and silly. You can see that they're not really sincere in their argument. They're trying to be deceptive. They're arrogant. Uh, they've got that kind of looking down on their nose of this, whatever, this simple Galilean Bible teacher who actually thinks the rest of this book is true. They want to embarrass him. They want to discredit him. And again, they come up with this ridiculous scenario. Um, and what, what's a little bit cold-blooded about it to me is it pushes against one of the deepest fears all of us have as humans, or at least one of the deepest questions we have. What happens after we die? Uh, if you've been married for a while, what happens between me and my spouse? What's going to happen? Is this all that there is? Is there life after death? So not only are they coming up with this kind of ridiculous scenario, who has seven brothers and who's going to... Just play that scenario out. Really, all seven of them are going to die and she's going to make... It's totally ridiculous. And so they create a ridiculous scenario, but then they use one of the deepest fears that we all have. What is life after death going to be like, if anything at all? What about the resurrection? So Jesus's response to them begins with a strong word of rebuke. He says, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Um, those first couple of words... That we don't, they don't feel as strong in English as what Jesus actually said. It's, he's in essence saying, you've got it totally wrong. You are so wrong. You're not even close. It's a strong word of indictment and rebuke. You've missed it. You don't get it. And it's important for us here to note that Jesus rebukes the liberals right after he rebuked the conservatives. These stories happen right on top of each other. He's too conservative for the liberals, and he rebukes the liberals, but he's too liberal for the conservatives, and he rebukes the conservatives. So here, again, we've talked about politics a lot recently, much to my chagrin, um, because of what's happening around us. And what I want to be clear with this is that Jesus doesn't offer middle ground. Jesus was not a centrist. He's not offering middle ground where you're a little bit liberal and a little bit conservative. The, the way of Christ is a third way entirely. It's something different entirely, and it will alienate people on both sides. The gospel of Jesus is not a middle ground. It's, it's too liberal for conservatives, too, conservatives, too conservative for liberals. It's, an, it's a different path entirely. So, he rebukes the liberals on two grounds. The first is that they don't know their Bible and they underestimate the power of God. And what I think Jesus is doing here is absolutely spectacular. So in verse 30, he speaks to the power of God first. He says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. So what I think is happening here is the Sadducees' imaginations are failing them. And I think it's fail, our imaginations have failed most of us when we come to think about eternal life or, or life after death. You don't have to raise your hand here. I'm a little wound up. I don't know why this morning. I walk to church now. I just moved down. And so like, maybe it's the fresh morning air or something, but I'm just a little wound up this morning, you guys. Uh, when you think about heaven or the resurrection, um, is there any part of you that thinks it's just going to be like another trip on the Ferris wheel that we've already been on? And, and what I mean by that is like, you have a house now and in heaven, your house will be a better version of your current house. It'll be a house that doesn't leak, where the floors are level. Or maybe your body will be like the body you have. No, yeah, the people with old houses are like, level floors, amen. Yeah, nothing in my house is level, uh, which is kind of cool. It's quirks and features, I guess. Uh, you, 
we tend to think of eternal life as maybe just a better version of what we have now. So for me, I'm like, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to look like me. I'm still going to be six one ish but I'm not going to have any weight problems and I'm going to have long flowing hair again. I will be what I am, but like a, a better version of it. And so maybe my marriage, it'll be, I'll be married to whoever now, and it'll just, all of our struggles and problems will be gone. It'll just be a better version of our marriage. Well, I can remember after I first became a Christian, when I dreamed that heaven would be like endless chicken McNuggets and you would never pay any of the physical consequences of it. You see what a lack of imagination that is. When we think the life in the age to come is going to be just like it is now, but maybe a little bit better. Uh, winters will be snowy without getting bitter cold or, or whatever it is. So they think marriage up there will be just like it is down here and they can't imagine anything different. And so that leads them to believe that there's going to be this absurd marriage scenario. And they're just trying to discredit the idea of the resurrection at all. So listen, you have to see the connection between your imagination and your view of God. If you have a small view of God, you will have a weak imagination. And what is a weak imagination? Uh, have you ever been in a situation or a circumstance and you just can't imagine anything being different? You can't imagine overcoming that struggle. You can't imagine the dynamic in your relationships being any different. And you just feel stuck there. That is a weak imagination, which means you have a small view of God. And so Jesus says, listen, in this way, when we get to heaven, you will be like the angels. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what that means. In this respect, you will be like the angels. It means that we're not going to be married in the same way. But try to think about what we know about angels or how angels are described in the Bible. And you'll notice it's kind of crazy because there's something almost unexplainable about what angels are like. They're often described like living light or human lightning bolts. What is the typical response when humans are in the presence of an angel in the Bible? Anybody know what usually happens? Yeah. I mean, people have seizures. They fall on the ground like a Benny Hinn service. They have to get, you know, reassured over and over. You're okay. Don't be afraid. You're safe. We know that some angels are multi-winged beings that are absolutely terrifying. We know that angels can kind of phase through walls and structures. They can appear and disappear. They have incredible strength. They have incredible speed. If you, if you want to sum up one thing that I feel really sure about with angels is they are not like us. There has to be some way that they're similar to us because people have been, or angels have been mistaken for humans before in the scriptures. But in some profound ways, they are not like us. Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, listen, what's waiting for you is beyond your imagination. You will be transformed. You will be wonderfully different. Later in the New Testament, Paul will talk about the resurrection and he describes the resurrection like a seed compared to a tree. So try to imagine if you could, if you were an alien and you showed up on earth, and said, show me something amazing. And somebody brought you an acorn and said, guess what will happen with this? Would you have, you know how weird that is that an acorn, if you give it a little water and some time, it will become a gigantic oak tree? Can, have you ever taken an acorn and stood next to an oak tree and been like, really? Really? This turns into that? The degree of transformation there is 
is beyond our imagination if, we, if it wasn't so normal and we weren't so surrounded by oak trees. Think about the little power in that acorn. If you slam an acorn against your sidewalk, the sidewalk will win every time. But if you plant that acorn underneath the sidewalk and give it time, the sidewalk doesn't stand a chance. Your house doesn't stand a chance. Your driveway doesn't stand a chance against that acorn. Jesus is telling them their imaginations have failed them. The resurrection will be a transformation like an acorn becoming a tree. It will be something beyond what you can imagine. We will not be married the way we think of marriage now. But think about the best parts if you're married, the best parts of your marriage, the sweetest parts, the most satisfying parts. If those are like the acorn, what will love be like in the resurrection? What will intimacy be like? What will safety be like? What will security and companionship, what must that be like? It won't be the way it is now. It'll be something far beyond our imagination. And so Jesus is imploring his people here to not underestimate the power of God allow his infinite goodness and creativity to stir our dreams, stir our imaginations, and fill you with the hope of resurrection. Maybe some of you are feeling particularly stuck in something, and maybe the most holy thing you could do after this is go find an acorn and say, Lord, give me, the, give me faith that what can happen to me, or what can happen to this acorn can happen to me. Fill your imaginations with the wonder of God that is on display all around us in his resurrecting power to make us something far more than we could ask or imagine. So his first rebuke is about what a small view of God they have, of his power, how weak their imaginations are. His second rebuke, which I think is connected, and I hope, hope to show you how, maybe I'll convince you. Um, his second rebuke is connected to their poor handling of the scriptures, their poor understanding of the scriptures. So he says in verse 31, now as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you ever read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living and, sorry, the living, not the dead. Now, what I think is hilarious about this, imagine some of you maybe get in these conversations where people want to have philosophical or apologetic conversations with you and they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Would you go to this verse to talk about it? Does this verse seem like an obvious resurrection verse? This is from Exodus. This is from the book of Exodus. For most of us, we're not like, that's the proof text to argue for the resurrection of the dead. What is Jesus doing here? So again, he's quoting from Exodus to these people who only believe that the first five books of the Bible are scripture. Exodus was scripture to them. Isaiah and Daniel were not. Jesus is coming and he's speaking to them in a way they understand. He's saying, oh, you want to talk about the books of Moses? Well, I'll do you one further. I'll, I will quote to you from the books of Moses about a conversation or from a conversation that God has with Moses. This is from Exodus chapter three. God's speaking to Moses. You guys love Moses so much? Well, let's talk about Moses. And so now, can you put that back up, Connor? Sorry, buddy. Um, I just want you to notice here, one of the clues to what's happening is that God is speaking here in the present tense. You guys all know what the present tense is. It's okay if you don't. Present tense is things that are happening right now. So God says, I am the God. That's present tense. He is the God of the living. That is what Jesus is saying. Well, what's the big deal? Are we going to really make an argument out of verb tenses? Listen, I am the God. Why is that important? He does not say, I was the God. 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Have you, have you ever noticed the pain that's hidden when we describe relationships in the past tense? She was my wife. He was my son. We were friends. Past tense relationships almost always have deep pain and loss associated with them. You and I cannot be in relationships with people who have passed away. As we're coming into the holidays, maybe some of you are feeling that poignantly this year. That's a lot of wind. We have that open for airflow so none of us get the virus. I don't want to be a super spreader event, you guys. Amen? I thought that'd get a chuckle. I never know what to do when something distracting happens. Do we just all pretend like nothing happened? Doors are blowing. It's fine. We cannot be in relationships with people who have passed away or where the relationship is broken and severed. But listen, God's relationships are always present tense because we are alive to God. He is the God of the living not of the dead. He is in a present tense relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they yet live, because there is a resurrection. Um, Dr. Tim Keller describes this reality like this. He says, when God is speaking to Moses, he talks about his relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense, because when God puts his love on you, when you enter into a relationship with God, that relationship can never go into the past tense. He will never lose that which is precious to him. He's saying you don't understand the scriptures because you have a small view of God. You have a weak imagination. You think God relates the way that we relate, but all God's relationships are in the present tense. There is a resurrection. So he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We will be raised. We will be transformed. We will be loved for eternity. Love is never a concept. The resurrection is not just a metaphor. Love, like the resurrection, is concrete. It's real. It's here and now, even as it's waiting for us out there. Love does not exist in the abstract. Love does not exist as only an idea. It exists only in the context of relationship in real concrete ways. Love, like the resurrection, is only real and true when it shows up in our lives. Can you see here the failure of love in both the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Their insincere motives, their fear over losing power, their desire to make themselves great. They they remind me so much of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge If I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. One side of the coin here thinks that they know the Bible, but their lack of love has blinded them to the Bible that they love so much. The other side thinks they are the elites, but their arrogance has diminished their view of God and that has kept them from loving others. See, we can speculate on the resurrection all day, but it counts for nothing if you don't love people. Love is, in fact, the best way we can prepare for the resurrection and to help that day become more concrete in our souls now. So, listen, on this day, 
Here in the scriptures, the Pharisees trap Jesus. He rebukes them. The Sadducees, maybe they're thinking, the enemy of my enemy might be my friend. Let's see if we can trap him. He rebukes them. The Pharisees now, they hear that Jesus rebuked the Sadducees. And they say, maybe he's not so bad after all. After all he, he hates the liberals too. Maybe we can get along. And so look, verse 34, when the Pharisees heard he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. You feel a bit of the confusion there? Wait, 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 wait. We thought he would be with this guy. See, Jesus is rebuking both sides and it's making both sides uncomfortable. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to, someone say the word, trap him. Again, they're trying to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So there's parts of Christianity that are really complicated and you start getting into like, well, when is Jesus coming back? And when is, you know, you start picking through all this stuff. But listen, guys, the big stuff of Christianity is stunningly simple. It's not easy, but it's very simple. If you want to know, what do I do? You ever had that question? What am I supposed to do? How do I follow Jesus? Yeah, let me tell you, love God with everything that you've got and love people that same way. Everything in the Bible comes down to two invitations. Love God with everything you've got and love other people the way you love yourself. And you cannot do one without the other. Did you notice Jesus said, the second is equally important. Too many of us think that we're doing fine so long as we love God and say these words of love towards God, but you cannot say you love God if you have hate in your heart for your brother. The way we love God should reflect the way we love other people. We cannot separate these two. We must be a people committed to loving God with all that we have and loving others the way we love ourselves. If you follow Christ's third way of love long enough, I promise you, you will see the power of resurrection. This is how we prepare for that eventual day. Listen, think about somebody that you're mad about right now, or someone you're angry with, somebody that you call names in, in your mind, or you read their Facebook posts and you type out a long post and then you delete it. Think about that person. You know what Jesus says you should do to those people? You should love them and pray for them. All of us who feel so persecuted out there in the world, or like the church in the United States, this minority organization that's under attack. Do you know what Jesus says we should do for those who persecute us? He said we should pray for them. So just think about who you feel persecuted by and who you really hate right now and commit to the next week to pray for them and to show them acts of love and kindness and watch what happens in your heart. Watch how that changes and transforms you. If you take a posture of service, gratitude of love, I promise you, you will see the resurrecting power of God. If you follow Christ's invitation to love others the way you love yourself, the scriptures guarantee you will experience the presence of God. You will see him work wonders. You will see him make a way through the impossible. So see how these commandments are connected to the resurrection. Love is what will give you a glimpse of the power of God. If you stay in the love game long enough, you will see the resurrecting power of God in your life and in your relationships. Love is what will lead you to find the face of God in the scriptures. Love gets you God. 
And when you get God, you will love others. Listen to how Paul ends that previous thought from 1 Corinthians 13. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. Three things last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. It's the simplest way I can put it. If you want to understand the resurrection of the dead better, if, if you want to imagine it more fully and more deeply, and if you want to experience some of that now, learn to love better. Learn to love better. Because following Christ's way of love leads us to experience God himself and all of his resurrecting power. There in his presence, we will find confidence and hope that we will be wonderfully transformed, we will be raised, and we will be with God and each other forever. And communion provides us with such a rich example of what this means. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. I know this is how we start it. And we say the same thing so often. I mean, it's a ritual. So you do rituals ritualistically. We say on the night he was betrayed, Jesus's greatest act of love begins on a night when those closest to him would betray him, whether by falling asleep, whether by turning him in to uh, the local officials, whether by denying they even know him. And yet on this night when he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, he thanked God for it and broke it. And he said to his followers that would betray him, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. When the meal was over in the same way, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of your new relationship with God that's sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. What did Jesus do to his enemies? He bore the weight of their crimes. How did Jesus respond to those who persecuted them? He pleaded for their forgiveness. How did Jesus show us what resurrection looks like? By living a life of love, by laying down his life for others. And we, his people, are now invited to do the same. So I invite you now to take your cup and to open it, take out the wafer, and remember the body of Christ was given for you. Eat this and remember what he's done for you. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.